Welcome to episode 67. What is a highly sensitive person, also known as sensory processing sensitivity, featuring Patricia Young, licensed clinical social worker. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Patricia Young. Patricia is a licensed clinical social worker and she's been in the field since the 1990s. She's trained as a highly sensitive, knowledgeable therapist. Today she'll be joining us uh, to share her expertise about what it means to be a highly sensitive person and how we can work alongside a client who has this trait. Hello, Patricia, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me here. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you develop this specialization? Sure. Can I just start out by saying I'm a little bit nervous and I have a podcast and I do this all the time, but part of how I manage as a highly sensitive person is just naming what's going on so that it doesn't override me. So I'm just having this, like, I want to do this perfectly. And I know that all I have to do is show up. I know we talked about this before recording, but my heart is pounding. So I just want to name what's going on and then I'm happy to move on. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. Okay. So I learned about the trait of high sensitivity a couple years ago and it totally made sense to me. My training is as a therapist and since I started learning about the trait of high sensitivity and working with people with high sensitivity, I found a model for coaching that's really effective. So I still maintain my license. I have some clients under my therapy practice, but I really find that coaching is way more effective that as highly sensitive people, we tend to feel like we're wrong, we're misfits. And when we learn about the trait, it just totally makes sense why we do the things we do and that we're not like the other 80% of the population. Thank you. I actually love that you started out by uh, asking, you know, can you name it? Because I think that's a really good example of what you're going to talk about today, of what it means to be a highly sensitive person and how to move through the world with this really unique trait, with this really what is a gift. Thank you. And and that's been probably one of the major things that I've noticed a shift in me starting to really be okay with all the things that I show up with in the world is being okay to name it. I don't have to pretend like it's not going on. I don't have to put on a false face. I can say, hey, this is what's going on. I still show up. I still participate. But for me, it creates a a really large level of acceptance about like, hey, I'm just feeling really nervous and I want to do this right. And I'm just going to do the best that I can. So thanks for the acknowledgement. Absolutely. Um, Why don't you tell us what it means to be a highly sensitive person? Okay, this is a research-based trait that Dr. Elaine Aaron initially did the research on back in the 90s. The formal name is Sensory Processing Sensitivity. I ask people that come on my podcast, you know, is there another name that you would prefer? And what people have said is maybe highly attuned, highly perceptive, highly responsive. If you've ever been told you're too, you're too sensitive, you're too picky, you're too dramatic, you think too much, you worry too much, you can't take a joke, you need to get thicker skin, you might be a highly sensitive person. What we want to do is Dr. Elaine Aaron came up with four core characteristics that encompass the trait of being highly sensitive. So I'd love to go over that with you. But what I want to say first is it's an innate trait. It's something that we're born with. So it's not due to trauma. It's not due to a poor upbringing. It's how we come wired. And it affects about 20% of the population. So This is why we feel like misfits. We tend to be truth tellers. We see things and notice things that other people don't. I use the analogy of it's like the emperor has no clothes, although we don't know that everybody else was seeing that the guy had no clothes on, but we're kind of the canaries in the coal mines. So let's go to what the depth of processing means. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. Okay. So... D is for depth of processing. So it's D-O-E-S, does or does. Depth of processing. The highly sensitive brain has a more active insula. That's the part of the brain that helps enhance perception and increases self-awareness. So that self-awareness, we're always aware of what's going on. We usually have a little voice that's having a commentary about what's going on, our little narrator. So we're wired to pause and reflect before engaging. So sometimes as a highly sensitive person or HSP, we take in a lot of information around us and we think deeply about it. Sometimes that means that it's 
We're slower in making decisions. We need more time for transition between tasks. And then if you're an introvert, it that that may be even more so because highly sensitive extroverts tend to process verbally. So I'm going to talk through what I'm going what I'm thinking about, if I'm an introvert, I'm probably going to need more time to pause and reflect about that. But this depth of processing, we're always thinking about things and taking in information. So this is a, a pretty significant part of the characteristic. And I think when people think of highly sensitive person, they think of someone who's emotional and dramatic. And so I really want to emphasize that there are all four of these need to be present. And to just think about it as being sensitive and emotional is really a disservice to everybody involved. The O is for overstimulation and overarousal. Since HSPs notice more subtle details in their environments and we're more emotionally impacted by social stimulation, we tend to get overstimulated and exhausted by high levels of input. So this is where it's kind of an advantage and a, and a disadvantage for me. This is Dr. Aaron's information. I just interviewed Esther Bergsma on my podcast who takes in information and, on research in the brain and the highly sensitive person. This is where the disadvantage is. I don't know if this would go under the area that we're talking about, but I'm just reporting what she said, which makes so much sense, that they've done studies and in the highly sensitive brain more areas of the brain light up when we are interacting than a non-HSP. These are not exact numbers, but for the sake of conversation, if you and I are having an interaction, 20 areas of my brain are going to be lit up, where a non-highly sensitive person, maybe five areas of their brain are going to be lit up. And how I saw this come into play is my husband and I went out, spent some time with some people one night, and on the way home, there was something that happened that was really upsetting to me. And we processed it and he kind of acknowledged it. And the next morning I was still really upset. The behavior was something I hadn't seen before. It was unusual. And he, around one specific incident, he didn't seem to have the response that I did. And then when I thought, well, you know what? I have 20 pieces of information that I gathered and he has five. Of course, he's not going to have the same response that I'm going to have. And so it's not uncommon as highly sensitive people for us to be experiencing and perceiving things that other people aren't. It can feel invalidating. It can feel um, like we're discounted or crazy making. So as we learn that we're going to pick up more information than other people do, we just know like I felt it. It was real to me. Nobody else had to experience it. And I'm good with that. I can see how that extra sensitivity creates kind of a disconnect from the people around you who are not highly sensitive because you're taking in so much more information um, and that that could easily translate and cross a line from being stimulated to being overstimulated. Absolutely. And it's not uncommon for us to have gotten negative messages about our sensitivity just because if our parents weren't sensitive, you know, we'd be upset or hurt or worrying about something and we'd be told, let it go. Don't worry about it because they didn't understand. Well, then we end up feeling like how we show up in the world isn't okay. And then we give ourselves those messages. And so if, if I'm in this situation and I'm perceiving stuff and my partner isn't, if I haven't done my work and know about my strengths, chances are I'm going to go into like, I'm being hypervigilant, I'm making things up, I'm being too dramatic, I'm being too sensitive, where then we end up reinforcing those negative messages because we don't know that my perceptions are valid and they're real. And just because somebody else doesn't have that same experience doesn't mean that what I'm feeling is very valid and real. So learning about the trait and doing our work can can make such a huge shift from telling ourselves that stuff is wrong to going like, it's it's a different experience and it's okay. Thank you for breaking it down that way. So with the DOES acronym, you said D is for depth of processing and O for overstimulation or over arousal. Mm-hmm. Um, how do the other two uh, factor in? So the E is for emotional responsiveness or empathy. I've heard people say emotional reactivity, and I don't like that at all because we have very strong emotional responses to things. We have a very strong sense of justice, what feels fair, what feels equal, and we can have those deep responses without acting on them. So brain scans have shown that HSPs have more active mirror neurons, which are responsible for feelings of empathy for others and more activity in areas that are involved with emotional responses. So it's 
not uncommon that we don't like watching scary things, frightening things. I can't watch the news. It's just too upsetting for me. I don't like watching animals get hurt. Those things, I just, it's like every nerve is on fire. HSPs also feel things more strongly, like if it's positive, we're affected more than a non-HSP. So put us in a positive environment, we're going to fare better than the non-HSP. Put us in a negative environment, we're going to fare worse than a non-HSP. But we are going to have these strong emotional responses to things. And like, I have lots of expectations and lots of disappointments. And I was told for years to lower my expectations. Well, this is how I'm wired. So what I find often is I'll be like, ah, something didn't work out right. Oh, I had an expectation. I didn't realize it's that thing again. And then I can kind of, you know, do a little wiggle and shrug and go like, all right, so what do I need to do? Because we notice so many things and we take in so much information in certain areas, not, not every area, we often function and show up at a level that other people don't. We notice that the door was open, the paper was on the table, you know, we have to put the chair back this way. This is how somebody greeted us. Other people don't do that. And it's really common for us to think that everybody's wired the way that we are. So we can't figure out why are the people don't do the same things that we do. It's just not in their awareness. As you're talking about it, it's uh, making me wonder, it almost sounds like Sherlock, that a, a person that's really attuned to the details around them and has this ability to pick up all of these additional details that non-highly sensitive people are simply unaware of, almost as if they can perceive more colors on the rainbow. Yes. And what I didn't say is these are all generalizations. You know, the only thing consistent about being a highly sensitive person is it looks different for all of us. And I often forget to say that just because I'm saying that this is what the trait is, it may look different for everybody. And it's not my intention to lump everybody into a group. It can be very validating. And I really want to honor that it looks different for everybody. And there are certain areas where I notice all kinds of stuff. My son was home from college and I got in the car with him. He he came home. We were going to go get a haircut for him. I'm like, do you need to get a haircut? He's like, nope. I'm like, how come? I didn't look at him. He'd gotten a haircut while he was out before he came home. Like, hmm. Wasn't very noticing of that, but I noticed all kinds of other stuff. And it's a really interesting example of um, not necessarily knowing what details are going to pick up and which ones are going to be ignored um, or overlooked. Right. And there's nothing about this that makes us better than anybody else or worse than anybody else. This is just about information. But I, I really, you know, I talk often about my partner because in some ways he's got some sensitivities and other ways he doesn't. And there are times when I just don't understand, like even this morning I was vacuuming and I realized that he put a cord from that, that cuts across the room where we walk for a fan. Apparently it's been there and I haven't noticed it, but I kind of thought, why didn't he just put the extension cord on the wall where we've got the outlet? And, you know, I kind of went into judgment about it and I thought it's not a big deal. And I, I switched it over, but things like that, like with problem solving that we tend to see, we tend to worry, we tend to predict poor outcomes. We tend to, you know, kind of go to the worst place And it also makes us amazing problem solvers. We're creative. We think outside the box. We can troubleshoot and forecast. So it's just being mindful of not going into that judgment. And I think when you're married and you have, you know, people that are close to you, it's easy to go into the judgment and, you know, you choose to handle that how you choose to handle it. Um, Thank (laughs) you for sharing that example so we can relate to it a little bit more. So that E for emotional responsiveness or empathy, um, what does the S stand for? The S is sensitive to subtleties. So HSPs notice subtle details that others miss, such as nonverbal cues, small changes in the environment, were more impacted by strong sensory input, bright lights, loud noises, strong smells, rough textures. And oftentimes, and I've actually done this, if you've heard me before, I, I was corrected by somebody and, and I really try to provide accurate information and I just kind of make a mistake sometimes. And I was really making the S more about uh sensory input. And that's just a very small part of it. It's really about the noticing that we really notice things that other people don't. And that I imagine partially contributes to this, this uh, misunderstanding that happens between HSPs and non-HSPs. Yeah, because we pick up on things, you know, there's, there's a place where it can kind of go one of two ways. And what I often talk about in the therapeutic room, I always let my clients know ahead of time, There are probably going to be some times where I misattune to you. I say something that's not sensitive. I I just, like I'm human and I'm going to make a mistake. So if that happens, please let me know. 
And if I have a day where I'm having low energy, I'm tired, maybe I have some things that are going on with me personally, and I know that going into the session that how I'm showing up is not how it usually is, I name it. So I'll say, hey, I just want to let you know I'm feeling tired today. I'm feeling like I'm going to fall asleep if you see me yawning or fidgeting. It's what's going on because what's going to happen is my client's going to be telling me something and I'm going to yawn. I'm going to fidget. If I haven't named it, chances are on some level, whether it's conscious or not, they're going to think I'm not interested. I'm judging them. It's not okay for them to talk about what's going on. It's going to change the, the dynamic and it's it may create a rupture in the therapeutic process. Maybe I had a bad lunch, but if I don't name it, then my client's going to pick up on it. The reason why I talk about it with my clients is I want them to be able to say like, hey, you seem like you're not paying attention today. What's going on? And that's why I really try and do the front loading before every session if something's going on to just name it. What I hear therapists saying is like, do you yawn in sessions? Like, no, I hide it. I will often tell my clients, like I read these threads where people, therapists are saying like, do you yawn in session? And like, we have a great laugh about it. There's so much room for us to show up and be human. And if I allow myself to be human, it allows my client to be human. And I know that there's a lot of, you know, is it professional? Is it not professional? Everybody gets to decide for themselves based on their theoretical model, who they work with. What I can tell you with the folks that I work with, the more authentic I am uh, appropriately with healthy boundaries, the more normalizing and validating it is. And it really deepens the relationship and the work that I do with my clients. I can definitely see how important that would be, particularly when working with highly sensitive people to be able to bring it in the room and name it. And also how validating that would be for them and their experience so that you kind of meet them at the pass. Right. And, you know, this is a, again, another personal example. There are actually two of them that when we're at home, I like to keep our security doors locked. That just makes me feel safe. And my husband grew up in a place where nobody locked their doors and, you know, it was safe. I don't have that same perspective. And so I've asked him to keep the door locked and he forgets. So I will often, I will lock it and often he'll go to go out and he forgets that it's locked. And so he's visibly upset and I can see that. The story that I make up in my head is he's mad at me because I'm paranoid, I'm worried, I don't trust. So I just asked him, like, you seem really mad. He's like, yeah, I keep forgetting that you locked the door. And so had I not said something to him, I would have this whole narrative about how I think he views me. And, and based on what I know about my husband, he just forgets that I like the door locked. And so he goes to go out and it frustrates him. So there are ways that we can used reality checks when we do pick up on something because there's this danger of making a story up in our head about what's going on when he just forgets that the door's locked. Thank you for sharing that example and kind of illuminating how this appears in the day-to-day -day and how it can add complexity to relationships. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Dr. Elaine Aaron, how this research started and kind of uh, the the momentum behind it. I know that at Santa Cruz, she started doing interviews with people. I think she was interested more, and, and I could be wrong on this. She was interested about the trait of shyness and introversion, and, and somehow it turned into being research about the highly sensitive person. So I don't really want to say, I don't want to make up stuff is really what I don't want to do. However, what I'd love to do is to talk about some of the statistics around the trait. And again, this all comes from Dr. Elaine's research. So highly, the trait of being highly sensitive is equal among men and women. Now, when her research was done back in the 90s, there was no research that was done on non-binary trans folks. And so I, I just did an episode with someone and a colleague was kind enough to say like, hey, it would be nice if you would acknowledge that we just don't have research on how this affects the non-binary and the, and the trans population. So I don't have any numbers on that. And I'm really sorry about that. But I want to be sensitive that the research does not address that at all. I appreciate you bringing that up and, and bringing in the diversity issue. So in terms of the prevalence of the trait and the research by Dr. Aaron, so she found that the trait was consistent um, with men and with women. I imagine that uh, that finding is a little bit, not controversial, but a little mind-bending when our society is much less supportive of men showing their emotions than of women. Yes. And I, I, I think it's challenging culturally to, you know, if you Google the word sensitive, there's a, a TED talk 
that this woman is talking about high sensitivity. And she says, if you Google sensitivity, you get pictures of sore toes. So again, when we think of sensitivity in our culture, we think of crying, emotion, hurt toes. And if you go back to the the four core characteristics of a, of a highly sensitive person with the dose, it's depth of processing, overstimulation, over arousal, emotional responsiveness, empathy, and sensitive to subtleties. That takes a little bit of a different shift because you think of a crying woman, that's what somebody who's sensitive. And if you think about artists, poets, musicians, you think about people that are, you know, gentle souls, Mr. Rogers. I mean, that's a perfect example of a highly sensitive person. I wouldn't see him as being emotional, but he really was very thoughtful, very mindful. He created environments that were very calm and soothing that really helped us to feel seen and heard. So I, I think the name highly sensitive person often brings up a connotation of something that really may not be as descriptive of the trait as it is. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I like the example of Mr. Rogers. It's interesting because um, the recent documentary about Mr. Rogers and his approach showed the picketing, rioting, I don't know what you want to call it, but people disagreeing with him and saying that he was gay. And it was really interesting how all of these assumptions had been made about his sexuality based on the fact that he was a sensitive man. Right. And I can see how in therapy, it must be so difficult, and not even in therapy, but just in the world to be a highly sensitive man when that trait is so um, looked down upon in our culture. Yep. And what, what often happens is that people bury their trait of sensitivity. So on Dr. Aaron's website, which is hsperson.com, there's a self-test that you can take to see if you're a highly sensitive person. And what Dr. Aaron suggests is if you suspect you are and you take the adult version of the test and you don't meet the criteria, she suggests taking the child version of the test and think back to when you were a child and the things that you heard about yourself. There's a really good chance that if I had taken the test when I was in my 30s, I may not have met criteria because in order to survive in my household, we did not talk about feelings and I was incredibly intellectual and could not tell you the name of a feeling. So it's very possible that we have these tender hearts and tender souls, but it wasn't adaptive for us to show that and so we bury it. When it comes to burying that, uh, knowing that you're somebody who specifically works quite a bit with highly sensitive people, how do you bring this trait into the room? How do you acknowledge that person's experience out in the world and how their experience is different because of having this trait? My experience is the way that the process unfolds is learning about the trait, learning that it's something that we were born with and there's nothing wrong with us, and then doing a lot of validating, educating, normalization so that people feel okay about it, and then starting to do skill building. And what often happens is, Dr. Aaron says that children that were raised in difficult environments have higher rates of anxiety and depression. And this kind of goes back to that. It's the differential susceptibility that highly sensitive people do better in positive environments than non-HSPs, and we do worse than non-HSPs in, in, in poor environments. Oftentimes what happens is people that hate their trait of sensitivity, they hate that they're emotional, they've received these messages, they give them to themselves. There's often what I call wounding that's overlaid with the trait of being a highly sensitive person. So it's not the trait of being highly sensitive that you hate. It's that it wasn't allowed and you don't like how it shows up because if a child is raised in an environment where the parents are attuned to them, they're going to learn to self-regulate. They're going to learn that how they show up in the world is okay. And it's not the trait of sensitivity. But when we get those messages of stop being so dramatic, stop crying, you know, stop making a big deal out of things. We have to separate from our authentic self in order to survive. And so it's not the trait of high sensitivity that we hate. It's the wounding that we weren't allowed to show up and weren't taught how to, how to self-regulate, soothe, and manage. Does that answer your question? It does. Um, I know in uh, Dr. Aaron's book about the highly sensitive child, she gives this example of um, basically this trait appearing in uh, other parts of the animal kingdom. And she gives an example about, I think it's a, a deer in a clearing and that this trait would affect how the population would behave in response to either a perceived or unknown threat. So that a highly sensitive deer, for example, might be a little more 
hesitant or reticent to walk into a clearing because it's really attuned and listening around it. So it, it might actually be an evolutionary advantage to have diversity of this trait within a population because then not all of the herd would behave exactly the same. Um, tell us, tell us your thoughts on that. Tell us kind of your view on and and Dr. Aaron's view, kind of on almost this evolutionary basis for high sensitivity. Sure. Well, the trait of high sensitivity has been identified in over a hundred animal species, and it's a survival instinct because it occurs in Dr. Aaron says fifteen to twenty percent of the population. A year or two ago, I had the privilege of listening to her speak, and she spoke with a group of us therapists, just free form, and was kind of shared more intimately with us than doing a formal presentation. She suspects that it's higher than 30%, but because I haven't seen any research, I'm reluctant to say that. So it's too high to be a disorder. It's not a diagnosis. It occurs in at least 100 animal species. And I was just listening to Dr. Ted Zeff. He just passed away, but he is also another prominent person in the field of high sensitivity and has written a book called The Strong, I think, Strong Sensitive Boy. And I was reading one of his books and he talks about horses, that a horse that's highly sensitive is the one that's going to alert the rest of the pack to danger. They're going to be picking up on cues in the environment and they're going to leave if there's danger and that horse is going to lead the other horses to safety. So it's definitely a strength. We make incredible leaders. We're great listeners. We're compassionate, creative. We think of, of solutions to things that nobody does. We're conscientious. We're loyal. And about 50% of people seeking mental health services are highly sensitive people. So this is where it's really important for therapists to be knowledgeable about their HS clients because the clients may not know that they're highly sensitive. And it's not uncommon for highly sensitive people to have higher levels of anxiety. I mean, I thought I had social anxiety and I thought I was an introvert. The truth is I'm a highly sensitive extrovert and, and this is anecdotal on my part. What I imagine happened when I was young is I would go into an environment, I would get over aroused, overstimulated. I didn't know what it was. It just felt yucky. So the way that I dealt with it is like, I'm not going into that situation again. And when I read a lot of memes around introversion, oftentimes what we read about introversion, the trait of highly sensitive is overlaid, but it's not specified. So then I thought I was a highly sensitive, I thought I was an introvert and it gave me a reason to not participate. The truth is, as a highly sensitive extrovert, I need a certain amount of stimulation. And if I don't get that, what shows up for me can look like depression. And I really had to do some work like, am I depressed? It's like when I learned about it, I need to find that sweet spot for me about how much stimulation I'm not going to be seen in a concert, in a big venue where it's noisy, maybe one person, a small group in an intimate setting. But for me, I need that sense of connection to kind of get my juices flowing. It, it energizes me. So when we understand about the trait, it really can make a difference in how we care for ourselves. I can see also how, again, how different it is to approach a highly sensitive person in therapy because they are so attuned, like your example about you know whether a therapist yawns. I also have seen the research that suggests that um, highly sensitive people in general are drawn toward helping professions. So I would imagine a lot of our listeners, if they haven't heard this before and aren't familiar with highly sensitive people are going, oh my gosh, that's me. Yeah, we tend to be the healers. And I, I just want to give you one more statistic that 70% of highly sensitive people are introverts and 30% are extroverts. So it's just another thing to be aware of. But if you're a therapist and you have a client that comes in and they may be presenting with anxiety and you're not familiar with the trait of high sensitivity, you might be giving them tools to be like the other 80%, which really ends up creating, I, I don't mean to sound um, judgmental, and, and I do have some judgment about this, so I'm just going to own that. It ends up creating a rupture because the person may not know they're highly sensitive. They already feel like something is wrong with them. They think they're supposed to be like the other 80%. The therapist treats them like they should be as the other 80%, and it doesn't honor how they're wired and what they need to really grow. And I've had therapists as clients that come to me telling me about some of these ruptures that have happened when they've had other therapists. You know, we don't know what we don't know, so this is not to make anybody feel bad, but it is a call to action that if half of your clients are highly sensitive and you want to have a good retention rate and you want to have treatment plans that are going to be effective for your clients so they want to keep coming back, 
there's a value in learning about the trait and learning how you're going to adjust your treatment if you have clients that are highly sensitive and they may not even know that they're highly sensitive. So to clarify, you're saying that about 50% of people that are presenting for therapy are highly sensitive people. They have this trait. And of those, um, is it 70 or is it 80% are more introverted and tend to kind of recharge on their own versus the other part that is more extroverted? Let me, let me go back out of the population, about 20% are highly sensitive people. So 80% are non-highly sensitive people of that 20%, 70% are introverts, 30% are extroverts. And then of the 20% of people that are highly sensitive in our practices, about half of those folks are, are seeking mental health services because they're highly, well, they're not because they're highly sensitive, but are highly sensitive themselves. Now, I can't speak too much to this, but what we see about introversion and extroversion about the battery filling up and emptying, that really is geared towards a non-highly sensitive person. It's very different for the highly sensitive person. And I, I don't think that I can articulate it enough. There is an article that's at hsperson.com. It's written by Jacqueline Strickland, and it's called Introversion extroversion and the highly sensitive person. And I'm actually interviewing her on my podcast this weekend and asked her to talk about that because we tend to have those ideas of introversion and extroversion in terms of the battery. And that's all geared towards the non-highly sensitive introvert and extrovert. It's a whole different ball of wax when you look at it through the lens of being a highly sensitive person. I can see how in our practices, it would be really critical to understand this part of highly sensitive people and highly sensitive children to be able to provide that information to parents that are kind of stumped about why they might have a child that seems to have these really big feelings and the parents don't. And it's like, what is going on here? And how beneficial it might be to normalize not only the parents experience and struggle and give them resources, but also to help support the child and understanding kind of who they are and how they feel. Absolutely. And for your highly sensitive children, your HSCs and your adults, we tend to be so hard on ourselves that if you've got a highly sensitive child and a non-highly sensitive child, how you respond to them is probably going to be different. Often with your highly sensitive child, you just have to look at them and they're like, oh, sorry, mom. And we have these ideas of how we need to parent and discipline. And for your highly sensitive child, it's going to be incredibly different because of that self-reflection. Your kid probably knows what's going on and they just don't know how to self-regulate. I, I mean, I'm not saying that a child always knows why they're doing something, but they're going to have they're likely to have far more self-awareness than your non-highly sensitive child. And the same is for adults. That I'm sure that we've all seen these clients in therapy that we don't need to be hard on them. They're already hard on themselves. And so our job with those clients, and I often find this is true for my HSP clients, is we need to do a lot of self-compassion, a lot of self-love, a lot of radical self-acceptance, lowering the bar because the standards can be so high and unrealistic no matter what we do, it feels like it's not enough and we're not enough, which which goes back to that initial wounding of who I am isn't okay and how I show up in the world isn't okay. So again, that's where that attunement comes in because for our HS clients, we want them to really embrace who they are, embrace their strengths. They already feel like they're not good enough. And when we come in with, you need to do this and you need to do that, it creates more wounding. That wounding and that kind of mismatch, how does that show up for you in your work with highly sensitive people? Well, it kind of goes back to that thing of when people don't appreciate their traits or they feel like there's something wrong with them, that's about wounding. And it, it was really interesting. I was driving home the other day from the vet. I had something happen with my dog who I'm incredibly attached to. And I allowed myself to cry. I kind of was in that place where I'd been holding it together, like, wait until you have information, just hold it together. And I was driving something and this isn't working for me. I started to cry and I kind of imagined hearing somebody that was highly sensitive going like, I hate my sensitivity. And I really kind of dialed in like, what am I upset about? It's like, I hate feeling powerless. I hate that I was at the vet for two and a half hours. I hate that I walked away with no information. I hate that the vet did not give me the information in a way that really works for me. And I had to work really hard. I hate that I spent a lot of money. Like I started to think about what was it that I was really upset about? And it wasn't about the sensitivity and that I was crying. It was about all of these other things. And I think that when we get those messages of don't cry, and then all this stuff builds up. And for some HSPs, crying is a way that we release. 
And then we just kind of get that energy out. But again, it would be easy to go like, I hate my sensitivity. I hate that I cry. It's like, no, that was a pretty normal response for being at the vet for two and a half hours, spending a lot of money, not getting any answers and having to work really hard to try and figure out what the next step is. So it's about how we look at it, how we reframe it and how we view it. I could have felt like, what's wrong with me that I'm crying? But I thought like, this is a pretty normal response given the circumstances. I can see how there could really be a disconnect with clients that have had that experience, either because of um, gender or any other diversity factor for that matter of, of how they're expected to be in the context of their race or their culture or their just their general um, community and feeling really badly about themselves and how that could really create long-term impact of poor self-esteem. Right. And all it takes is for a child to have a parent, like my mom, I, we have a great relationship. She lives with us. We've done a ton of healing. My mom was a single parent who was incredibly anxious and like the rules had rules. I had to go to my room if I had feelings. There was a chalkboard outside my door I could write on if I had feelings. I wouldn't recommend this as an effective parenting technique. So it created a lot of wounding. And I learned to be really intellectual and could not tell you about my feelings because that's what I needed to do to survive. If we have a parent that's ill or there's addiction or a sibling in the family that has an illness, I mean, it doesn't take much for the highly sensitive person to not really have a parent that's very attuned with them to create this kind of break from our authentic self. So we get these messages, whether it's overt or covert, that how we show up in the world is not okay. We internalize that. And then when we have experiences, we continue to tell ourselves that because we don't know any differently. So, so much of the initial work when when we're a therapist and we work with HSPs is providing education about like, of course you're this way. Like what you did was adaptive. It's not adaptive now, but these are strengths. I, I, I honestly believe that every single one of our perceived weaknesses is a superpower. And I moved, when my son went to college, I moved, I have a home office and I moved into his room, which was my office before he went to college, my husband had painted the middle bedroom where I was working and offered to paint the new bedroom. And I'm like, mm, I think I'm going to pay to have somebody done it because I can see the old colors sticking through. There's a little paint on the ceiling. It's like, you're so picky. And I'm like, okay, you can call it picky. I'm going to call it discriminating because I know that every time I look at that yellow peeking out from under the blue, it bugs me. Every time I see that paint on the ceiling, it bugs me. And this is about, I could have gone into like, oh my gosh, you're so right. I'm picky. I'm so ungrateful. I'm discriminating and details are really important to me. And I'm sitting in this office all day long and I really want to feel joy when I'm in here and I'm willing to pay to have somebody do it. So it would be easy to have that narrative of being picky. I'm discriminating. I'm, I'm sensitive. I'm very empathic. So I really believe that every single one of our perceived weaknesses, whatever we've been told is wrong with us, there's a corresponding superpower and we just need to do our work to figure out what that is because we have so many gifts to offer the world and the world needs HSPs. We are the healers. We're the change makers. And, and I want people to know that and to really change the narrative around sensitivity as being weak or bad. I really like how you're able to present not only what it's like for a therapist, but also thank you um, for me, and I'm sure from our listeners, for kind of sharing your experience too, bringing yourself into the room and saying like, "Hey, this is you know, this is my lived experience of what this trait can feel like." Um, when it comes to treatment planning, how do you integrate this information to kind of alter the trajectory of what interventions or what what goals you might be setting when it comes to a client's treatment when they have this trait? I really try and start where the client is and what is it that they're wanting. I really like when we can get to the place where we can start working on skill building. And if somebody comes in and they're just learning about the trait of high sensitivity, they haven't had therapy, they haven't done work, really the starting place is doing education, normalizing, and validating because we walk around with this, what's wrong with me? Why am I not like everybody else? And so that's really the first place of just learning about the trait, accepting it, embracing it, and then switch to a coaching model I feel pretty messy about explaining why coaching works for me, but for me personally, it really allows me to work more actively with the client, to be more directive. And I found something that 
seems to be pretty effective in working with, with my HS clients. And so we'll take certain situations of something that happened. We kind of work backwards about where was the breakdown? What did you tell yourself? How do we need to do some healing and how can we take this skill moving forward? Did that answer your question? Absolutely. It sounds like in the initial stage, it's really about providing psychoeducation. Do you recommend certain books to clients or websites, podcasts, resources? Um, tell us what you implement, not only ab about telling them exactly some of the stuff you're sharing today, what can they do outside of the room to learn more about this um, perceived weakness, but actual gift that they have? I love Dr. Aaron's work. So she's got a number of books. She's got the highly sensitive person. She's got the highly sensitive child. She's got the highly sensitive person in love. There's a book called, not a book, there's a movie called Sensitive, The Untold Story. You can you can Google it. I think you can find it on Amazon Prime. I'm, I'm not positive. And I think that there's a new movie called Sensitive in Love that's out. If it's not out, it's coming out shortly. If you don't like reading, and if you're a therapist, there's Dr. Aaron's book called Psychotherapy and the Highly Sensitive Person. It's um, very research dense, which is a little challenging for me. If you love research, then you'll love her book. I, I need things laid out pretty simply for me, which is probably why I break things down and give lots of examples, because that is the way that I learn. If you like watching videos, you can go to YouTube and Google Dr. Elaine Aaron. She's got a number of videos that you can watch. If you're a guy, uh, Ted Zeff, Z-E-F-F. And I think his website is drtedzeff.com. Dr. Aaron's website is hsperson.com. Ted Zeff has the book, The Sensitive Boy. I, I think that's, the, the name is something along the lines of that. He's done a lot of things. He's been on podcasts. There's a podcast that's not in production anymore, but it's called The Highly Sensitive Person. It's a great podcast. I, I obviously love my own podcast, Unapologetically Sensitive, but those are some places to start. I'm pretty mindful about wanting people to get information from sources that are accurate. And I've made some mistakes, which I, I feel like I want to send people the right information. And I've made some mistakes and, you know, I, I can't wait until I can do it perfectly and I'm going to misstep. Thank you for providing those resources. So it sounds like really the first step is psychoeducation, supporting the client outside the room in learning about themselves and just kind of the normalization of that process. And then when it comes to your work, which is kind of bridging the gap between psychoed therapy and also coaching being a little bit more directive and hands-on, what are some interventions that you've personally found to be really effective? I love using specific examples that people are struggling with. They feel like it's not like I can come in and say, this is what you need to do. The areas that I find really helpful in working with highly sensitive people is doing education around mindfulness, self-compassion, identifying the negative messages, turning them into superpowers, working on perfectionism. Part of because we take in so much information, we want to make the right decision. And that often makes it difficult for us to actually make a decision because we don't want to make the wrong decision. Really demystifying our emotions, embracing our emotions, because if we haven't learned how to self-regulate, emotions can feel like they're really big and really scary. So a lot of the work is on learning to really create space for those emotions. And it's just energy that moves through us. The introduction of mindfulness, I can see how centering someone and basically helping them ground could help navigate that water when they are feeling overly aroused. Absolutely. Not only grounding techniques, but the reason why I love starting with mindfulness and self-compassion is we need to start curiously looking, observing what happens when we're in these interactions and we get triggered or reactive or hurt. What is it that happened? What was something that somebody said? What was it that we heard and where did that bring us so that we can kind of deconstruct it and give corrective information and validate all the emotions because we tend to feel like how we respond to things is not okay. So having that mindfulness and self-compassion to know that whatever comes up for me, even if it's yucky, it's all good. In terms of different um, methods, so it sounds like mindfulness, I can already hear kind of some overlap with ACT and with DBT. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you pull from in terms of theoretical models? I'm struggling because like CBT and DBT are good tools, but I think that it, we, for me and for my highly sensitive clients, that real sense of embracing whatever shows up, however you show up is really okay. Really, I, I find that lowering the bar 
because the expectations tend to run so high and there's so much self-flagellation that really dialing back to you are really okay, you're good enough, you, how you show up in the world, you're seen, you're heard, because very many HSPs have that sense of there's something wrong with them and that they need to fix that. And so it's really going back to that real holding space of like, there is nothing wrong with you. You have all these amazing gifts and we just need to figure out what's going on and tease them out. But it means having to bring that stuff into the light to heal it and so much shame. There's so much shame that goes on because we feel like who we are isn't okay and if we showed it to anybody. So again, that real acceptance and embracing that who you are is really okay. I think that normalization could be so impactful. Can you share maybe a, a case sample or a few of kind of your experience in working through this with your highly sensitive clients? What's that's actually been like for you as an expert in this? Sure. So I had a client who was dating someone and the last few months of their relationship, something was off and then the partner broke up with them. And my client was going like, what did I do wrong? I should have done this. I should have done less of that. I should have done more of that. And in this two or three month period where things were kind of wonky, my client kept asking what's going on and their partner did not was not really able to give them any information. So it's not uncommon for HSPs to figure like, what did we do wrong? Again, this goes back to wounding from childhood, that if you have a child and the parent doesn't attune to them, the child has to make it about themselves for survival. A child can't go, oh, my parent is emotionally unavailable and is not able to meet my needs and attune to me because they're too overwhelmed. You know, a kid can't do that. So the defense mechanism is, it must be something about me. I've got control. So if I can just figure out what to do, I can control the situation. When those wounds don't get healed, we're adult people still trying to figure out what we can do to make the world right. And that's how it showed up in this relationship. So we really talked about, well, what is it that you want in a partner? What is it that you want in a relationship? What is it that you want with communication? And the client was able to see like, hmm, to not communicate for me to, for two to three months and then to break up probably is not something I'd want to repeat again. So it's that education about, it's really not about you. What is it that you want? What are your values? What do you want to create? I mean, we still had to deal with the grief and the loss with the relationship. That's a very common pattern for highly sensitive people to think that they're at fault. They did something wrong and they need to change it. And this client had shown up and done everything that they could and it wasn't a good fit and the partner didn't really have the skills that would make a successful relationship. I think I'm hearing so much how this comes up relationally. Yeah. And that that could be such a starting point for the development of, like you said, of a really deep shame. Like there's something wrong with me for being yeah. this way, for noticing these things, for having these feelings. And then um, I can easily see how that can manifest as depression or anxiety. And I know on my caseload, I have a number of highly sensitive people uh, at any given moment moment and have been working with them not only to understand what's happening with that trait, but to break down how that's showing up and to use those observations or those feelings as indicators for kind of future choices, which it sounds like is exactly what you were doing with this particular client. Um, how about with children? Do you treat highly sensitive children? I don't. I think one of my kids is highly sensitive. I'm, I'm not really sure. I have twins that are 19 now and I don't I don't feel like I'm the HSP police trying to figure out if people are or not. But having, you know, kids that had ADHD and mood disorders and very challenging, I, I really feel like parenting was very, very difficult. And I really had to learn how to be very creative with my kids. And they did have sensory processing disorder, which is not the same as sensitivity to sensory stimuli, but we had to deal with that in occupational therapy. So while I don't treat it directly, I had a lot of experience around it. Got it. And I, I think you bring up another important point, which is how this trait could create uh, different challenges for stages of life that otherwise might not be present as much for non-highly sensitive people. So if you have a parent who's highly attuned to their child, part of being a toddler, for example, is having these really big feelings, whether you're an HSC or not, and not knowing what to do with them. And you're kind of potentially inconsolable as a toddler. And for a parent that's highly sensitive, that could be really kind of disturbing. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on how much awareness the parent has and how much they had their needs met. Like for me, my mom is an HSP. We didn't know that. And she was just struggling to survive. So even though she was an HSP and I was a child, she was not able to attune because of her own needs for survival. So I think it really depends on what's going on. And whatever we didn't get as a child growing up and we have kids, whatever that unresolved junk is, I guarantee you it will show up when you have parents and when you have children and your kids hit that age where you didn't get what you needed, then we end up lacking those skills and it really can create challenges. I've, I've made my share of very, very, very poor parenting decisions as a parent because I just didn't know what else to do. I can see in addition to even parenting how this could manifest with other diagnoses. So, you know, we know the development of personality disorders. So you have, you know, to, to make it a really rudimentary formula of a particular sensitivity, trauma, and then kind of a, a lack of, of appropriate attunement or response from the environment is kind of the uh, jumping off point for the possible development of personality characteristics or looking at trauma and why some people could have trauma and don't develop post-traumatic stress disorder and others do. And addiction, I could see a lot of overlap between these diagnoses and how being highly sensitive would, would impact that in our clients. Absolutely. Well, and if we don't learn how to self-soothe and self-regulate, we're going to look for something outside of ourselves, whether it's videos or food or spending or social media or reading, or I mean, they could be adaptive and they could be maladaptive because we're just trying to figure out how to manage taking in so much information and getting, having strong feelings about things. So absolutely. And it's not uncommon for the, for there to be misdiagnosis, depression, anxiety, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, sensory processing disorder. And then like we talked about, uh, addictive disorders as well, because of that sense of um, strong emotional responses to things. If you have practitioners that are not familiar with the trait of high sensitivity and Again, from my own experience that I was on medication for depression and anxiety, I thought I had social anxiety, I thought I was an introvert. Once I learned about the traits, I've found ways to manage. It's not perfect. I still have struggles. And that's something that I really, it's part of my, what my belief is with my clients is to say like, this is about learning tools. So when things come up, we know how to deal with it. In the past, it would probably take me out for a couple of days it, that generally doesn't happen now. It's annoying and I can see that it's going on, but I have enough distance to go like uh, this week, something happened where I feel like I live in the place of like the world is safe. It's a good place. Kumbaya, namaste. And I had a handful of things happen, the things that make me want to poke my eyeballs out. And it really pulled that, that belief up for me of like everything in the world doesn't work and everybody's out to get me. And I felt like I had a foot on each side the difference was I was able to say, like, it feels like everything is conspiring against me. I know it's not true, but it feels like it. But I could see myself, like, washing in and out of it. I went to get a prescription from the vet. This was kind of the same thing with my dog. And there was a problem with it was an $80 prescription. And then they had to call the vet to, to get the name changed and why the vet didn't give them the name where the prescription was only $12. And, like, it threw me right back into that, like, see, they're just trying to get me. So we're going to have this stuff come up. We can have the awareness of it. It's not like I went ballistic. It's not like I went to bed for three days, but I really try and model to my clients like things are going to come up and we're going to get that sense of being thrown and we can use our mindfulness to see that it's going on and sometimes it feels terrible and we still manage. It just doesn't feel really great. Out of curiosity with your highly sensitive clients, do you share your own high sensitivity with them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think this is another reason why the coaching model has helped ease a little bit of my ethical concerns. And I'm very honest on my podcast. I have bonus episodes where I talk about many of the things I've shared with you today because it's so empowering to highly sensitive people. And I often in session will say like, hey, this is what came up for me today because it relates. And I'll say my intention in sharing this with you is to validate like we're still going to have responses to things. We're still going to get triggered. This is how I handled it. And I'm really mindful and always ask my clients, like, I don't want you to feel like I'm taking time from your session. Is this helpful? And every single one of them say, I love that you are so transparent because it feels so normalizing and validating when you feel like there's something wrong with you for all of your life. 
And I've had years of therapy and I kept thinking what's wrong with me that I keep needing therapy because again, this is my personal thing, but none of my therapists ever indicated that they struggled. And so I honestly thought that if I did therapy right and good enough, I would be living this happy life and I'd still struggle. And I thought, what am I doing wrong? It was very, very disconcerting. Thank you for your transparency in that. I remember at the Evolutions of Psychotherapy Conference, kind of what I call the Therapy Olympics, a couple of years ago, I'm trying to think what year that would have been, uh, 2016, it may have been. Um, and it was interesting because a lot of the content from that particular conference was actually moving more into the space of therapists showing up authentically and not not you know bringing their stuff into the room but being there as an authentic other and really wading into the space of of healing and using self as a tool for healing. And it sounds like that's what you've been able to do with your clients is show it, show up in the room. This is how I am. This has been my experience. Let's talk about where this overlap is happening and how normalizing that could even be for clients. Yeah. At least with the highly sensitive people that I work with, I mean, honestly, in my practice, this is how I show up. And before I specialized in working with HSPs and I just, you know, initially when I started private practice, because I'd had a hospital background and we worked, we had a behavioral health unit, I accepted all kinds of clients and, you know, then figured out what really worked for me. But showing up authentically is something that really works for me. It's it's a theory that I believe in 100% for the people that I work with. And the results that I get and the relationships that I have with clients are just amazing. I mean, I had a client, this was not a highly sensitive client. She had a bunch of medical issues. I saw her in the home twice a week for a, an extended period of time. And we had talked about when she got a diagnosis that actually ended up being treated and cured. I got kind of curious about like, if you died, would you want me to go to your funeral? And she's like, yeah. Like, well, what do you want me to say? If people say, how do I know? She's like, tell them you're my therapist. It turns out, she said, I really want you to come and speak at my funeral. We talked about it. She got cured of this one thing and then unexpectedly died of something else. And I went and spoke at her funeral. And I really feel like that's because of the authenticity and the way that I showed up. We had this amazing relationship and I felt her loss so deeply. There's nothing wrong with us with having connections with our clients that press on what the boundaries are. And I feel really good about my relationship with her, speaking at her funeral. It was really a blessing. And I think that we can have these very strong, meaningful connections with our clients and stay within the ethical boundaries of our position. I appreciate how you're presenting that and, and kind of the importance of, of showing up authentically and being able to bring yourself into the room as a, as a fellow highly sensitive person. And I'm so curious to hear from our listeners that identify as highly sensitive people, what their experience has been as well. Um, Patricia, we are about out of time for today's podcast. Um, so to, to kind of recap what you've shared from today, it sounds like one of the biggest takeaways is just to have our eyes and ears open to recognize this trait, potentially in ourselves, but also in our clients and how beneficial it could be then to facilitate sharing information with them that will help them understand this part of themselves better and embrace it a little bit more. So it's not so shame inducing. Um, you've already shared some resources with us. Again, please remind us what are the websites you recommend? What books? How can our listeners find you if they have questions for you about your work? So for resources outside of myself, Dr. Elaine Aaron's website, which is hsperson.com, Dr. Ted Zeff's website, which I think is Dr. Ted Zeff, there's a podcast called The Highly Sensitive Person. You can Google on YouTube, Ted Zeff and Dr. Aaron. Dr. Uh, Zeff has been on a couple of podcasts. All of Dr. Elaine Aaron's books are great, amazing. The book, uh, Sensitive, The Untold Story, and I think Sensitive and Love is out now. I have a podcast called Unapologetically Sensitive. You can find it on almost every podcast player there is. My website is unapologeticallysensitive.com. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching with clients. I have online HSP courses that I found to be incredibly transformational with clients. So you can go to my website. If you go to my website, I have links to Pinterest, YouTube, Instagram. I do a lot of posting about the traits of being a highly sensitive person. My, my passion really is to change 
the narrative that we have around sensitivity so that it's seen as a strength. And my tagline is, sensitivity is nothing to apologize for. It's our superpower. And I believe that in every fiber of my being. I really like that. Um, Thank you so much for being here today and for sharing not only your expertise, but also your lived experience, because I think it adds a whole layer to understanding what this is like for somebody who is a highly sensitive person. Um, Thank you again, Patricia. Thanks for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.